Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This is a really special podcast. We're, we're pretty much fangirling. Yeah, yeah, we are definitely fangirling. Yeah, so you know, this is Kim Honeycutt, and I'm a beautiful wife with me. Hi, I'm Larissa. Hi. Hi. Thanks for doing this with me. So we have an amazing guest. Like, we're so honored. We're so excited. Mm-hmm. We're so excited about this. Like, this is important for us. He's a big part of the fabric of our personal story, mm-hmm. of our coming out story, and us still being able to feel very solid in our, mm-hmm. in our walk with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a big part of that. So we'll interweave that later. Mm-hmm. But we want you all to know that Brian McLaurin... <laughs> Is here. Is here. He's in our house. Now it's through Zoom, but he's in our house. Yeah. <laughs> so I see him. Right yeah. Now. So, hey, Brian, thank you for joining us. Well, I've just got to say, I've been, ever since I heard uh, your story, I've been looking forward to getting this time with you. It's super, it means a lot to me to be with you, you two. So, oh. thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So sweet. Such a good, all right. So, we're just going to start here. Mm-hmm. And then we will interweave our story and our fangirling and our love for him as we go, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Here we go. All right, Brian, only guaranteed question when you hang out with us, which is what flipped your lid and what measures have you had to take to reconnect to who you really are? Well, I love that question. Uh, the two, uh, I guess the, the three best answers to that are, uh, I've always been a person who needs and loves the outdoors. And um, uh, I live in Southwest Florida. And anytime I can walk out my back door and I have these big tortoises that live in my backyard and they walk around and I'll feed them a flower or a apple core. And uh, oh my goodness, I just love any, anything that puts me in contact with nature. A second answer is, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a writer and a musician. So any chance I have to be creative is always recharging to me. Um, the third answer is um, my wife and I are grandparents. So any chance we have to be around our grandkids also is one of those things. A slightly less dignified answer that is also part of the truth is I really love stupid, funny movies. So, uh, you know, yeah. like I'm a fan of Weird Al Yankovic and and Princess Bride and all of those, you know, uh, Tommy Boy, all of those just stupid, funny movies. I like them all. Right. <laughs> yes. Do you think you like them because your work, you're, you've written so many books and, and when you put it so that someone like me can comprehend and, and chew on it, it's still a complexity, right? Like you're tackling hard topics. Do you think that like the balance of that is watching Tommy Boy? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is great. So you have, a, you have a new book out. Yes. Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, yes, that, and the Disillusioned. Yes. Uh, Do I Stay Christian came out uh, last May. And so uh, it's been a, a very meaningful and kind of intense year uh, getting out and talking about the book, uh, mostly on Zoom, but some in person, and then just receiving a steady stream of emails from people, from individuals, from groups who have maybe used it in a study or whatever. It's been 
very meaningful and gratify, gratifying and, and sometimes heartbreaking as people share some of their story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was the impetus to get you to like write that book? Like what was going on in your personal life that... Yeah. yeah, Larissa, that's, uh, I mean, w- one answer to that is that, you know, when I was literally in my single digits, like eight, nine years old, I was a kid who loved science. I was one of those little boys who loved dinosaurs and stars and weather and, you know, all that sort of thing. And um, and so I had uh, learned all about evolution in school and in the books that I read. And my church told me I wasn't allowed to believe that. And I just remember thinking, man, you know, a few years I'll be old enough and I'll be out of here because this doesn't make sense to me. So um, I think my own religious identity has often been conflicted even from childhood. Um, to my surprise, I, I ended up having a very powerful uh, spiritual experience in my teenage years. I ended up uh, that kind of put both of my feet on the path of following Jesus. And um, I became a pastor, did that for 24 years. And, um, and what has, what struck me in my years as a pastor, uh, and then in my 17 years since then, has been how many people who are Christian are really struggling staying Christian, how mm-hmm. many are leaving, and how many of the children of Christians are leaving. Um, and so this issue of Christian identity is a really big deal. And I should add, it's not just traditional Christians. Um, this is happening among Mormons. This is happening among uh, people would be surprised to know that there's a big defection in Asia from Buddhism. And uh, many young Muslims mm. and, and Jews are having similar struggles. So, so a lot of us are struggling with our religious identity in general and our Christian identity in particular. Mm. So let me ask this before we go in, like there was so much meat in what you just stated, but the the part about being a teenager and something landed you both on your feet, was that something traumatic or was it just an, an encounter with Jesus that became undeniable for you or both actually? So when I was like 13, 14, 15, I was pretty sure that I was going to end up an atheist. I I still, I I wanted to believe because that would make my life a little bit easier with my parents and my, you know, relatives and so on. Um, But uh, a whole lot of that just didn't make sense to me. And um and what happened is some friends of mine who are Southern Baptist, and I was from a fundamentalist background that that made Southern Baptists look liberal, and they had a lot more freedom than we had. <laughs> and um, they invited me to a retreat. And uh, I, I said, yes, I'd never been on a retreat before. Uh, our church didn't have retreats because they weren't in the Bible. Um Although I, I'm sure you could find a way to justify them from the Bible, but uh, we didn't do that. Um, uh, the only reason I went is because there were a couple of very pretty girls who I was interested in <laughs> who went. And um, while I was there, uh, I, I had no idea I was having, uh, we, we were being guided into what might be called a contemplative experience, but we were sent mm-hmm. off into silence for a period of uh, hours. And our job was to just find a place and be quiet in silence. And in that silence, I think maybe for the first time, I 
was able to pray about my doubts and to say, I'm not even sure if anybody's there. Um, and then I, uh, and what happened is I made that honest admission and turned that into a prayer. Um, later that evening, some friends of mine and I snuck out of the retreat as young people often do to hang out together and sitting alone under the stars. I just felt this very powerful experience with Jesus where I, I, I knew that God was love. And that was the, that was really the, what set me on, on my, a spiritual path that wasn't my parents or my churches. It was my own. Mm -hmm. That's so good. That's powerful. I feel the goosebumps on my arms. Yes. Um, in your book, um, one of your quotes here is, I used to think that things were real and change was something that happened to them over time. Now I think that change is real and things are events that happen over time. Change is the constant and things come and go, appear and disappear, form and fade away. Can you dive into that a little bit? What, uh, what brought you to that conclusion? Well, first, I'm so glad you would pick that passage because it's one of my favorite things. It was one of the favorite parts of writing that book was getting to put um, to put that into words. Um, let me give a a, a um, I'll give two short answers. The first answer will be a little more theological, um, uh, and the second a little more personal. Uh, in my years as a pastor, when I because I preach from the Bible each week, I over time began to feel that there was a big gap between what the Bible actually talked about and what Christian theology talked about. And I tried to figure out what made Christian theology different. And I became convinced, and still I'm uh, largely convinced of this, that early in Christian history, Christians adopted Greek philosophy as their as their philosophical categories to interpret Jesus in the Bible. And Greek philosophy, Greek, Greek philosophy, especially the philosophy of Plato, and especially a certain school of people who followed a certain understanding of Plato's philosophy, they emphasize this dualism between a, a, a metaphysical world where nothing changes and a physical world where things change. And I have come to see that as being deeply problematic and very hard to reconcile with the Bible itself. So that's maybe the philosophical mm -hmm. answer. The more personal answer is I mentioned yeah. how big a role creation plays in my life. And what you see when you look at creation is that everything is in motion. Uh, everything changes. And mm -hmm. if God made a world full of change and God is against change, this just doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> so, uh, so that would be the more personal reason. You know, one thing I think is so deep and it seems to be in, in the minority, which I think causes so many of us to live as minorities, is even your experience as a teenager, it became personal. Like there was a, you know, concerted decision, like there was effort towards not having to believe as others believe. And, you know, and I understand because you know, I, I say neuroscience, I understand what happens in the brain, I understand the five parts of the brain when there's something traumatic that happens and that we seek certainty 
from that and that certainty in religion becomes dogma. And so then you can't leave what you believe because if you leave what your set of beliefs, then you go into what the beliefs were covering in the first place. Mm. And so can you speak into, I know like so many people, so many people have left the church and, and it's because like we're not allowed to have that transformative experience. Like we're not taught to have a transformation, even though Christianity is based on having numerous transformations to, to get deeper and deeper and more personal with Jesus. And so can you talk about how, how do we get here where people are not encouraged to be themselves? So interestingly, sometimes those big theological questions like, is change, uh, uh, is God okay with change? <laughs> As opposed to, no, God really hates change and wishes everything would just be over with so he could get us in heaven where nothing ever happens again forever. <laughs> um, it, you know, those big, those big theological ideas end up translating into how we live our lives. So what tends to happen is uh-huh. people in, in religious settings where they think God is anti-change, then they become anti-change. Mm. Well, that would be fine if they were perfect, if they were already mature and perfect. But if we're anything short of that, then we need to change. In fact, that's really what the word repent means. Repent means change. It means change your mind, change your direction, rethink your life. And, And I think this maybe helps explain why a lot of our churches are very high in conformity, but very low in real deep transformation. And yeah, I'm sure, you know, for you, you Kim, uh, in your uh, psychotherapy work, you, you would see this, that, that people can in, invest an awful lot of energy in conforming to a social norm and conforming to a group's expectations. And that can keep them from growing and keeping keep them from changing. And so uh, I, it seems to me this is why, one of the reasons why, well, it's such a gift in both the Bible in general, but also in Jesus' own life and example, that the idea is we're supposed to be moving toward maturity. We're supposed yeah. to be changing. Growth is what this is all about. <laughs> it's a growth path, yes. Yeah. And you you talk about that in your book, which is how we really uh, fell in love with you and got to know you through the Suzanne Stabile podcast that we were listening to. And we'll tell that story in a moment. But um, in your book, uh, Faith After Doubt, you talk about um, some stage faith development. Um, there's four stages. Um, yes. How does that play into what you were just talking about? Yes, yes. Well, actually, that's uh, they, they really, uh, it really fits together. Um, I became interested way back when I was in graduate school, and I was a um, uh, I was a teaching fellow at the University uh, of Maryland, where I was studying literature. Um, I got some training in human development, and um, and it t- turns out that you know there's an awful lot of research, including very solid empirical research uh, about human development. We know about it with children. We know that you know, children learn how to roll over before they learn how to crawl and they learn how to crawl before they learn how to walk and they learn how to walk before they learn how to run. And then there are, it's the same with a lot of our intellectual and social capacities that we, we learn things step by step. And, um, when I learned about this in relation to just human development in general, I realized this really helped me understand my own faith development. And, um, so I then, I over the years I dug into about a dozen over a dozen theorists in human development 
And I tried to synthesize their, uh, their different theories into a, a simple framework that I call simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. And, mm. um, and simplicity is where we all begin. We have to begin with simplicity. Um, but unfortunately, what happens in many of our churches, whether Catholic, Protestant, whatever, is that simplicity isn't presented to us as an important first stage. It's presented to us as the only permissible stage, and we aren't allowed to grow past. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. In comparison to that with like spiral dynamics, would you say like that's like kind of going into the red and blue zone? Like you can't go beyond. That's right. That is it. That kind of thing. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And of course. When when people tell you that you can't go beyond a stage, it's not because they know there are another sta- there are other stages, uh, and they they're trying to keep you back. They don't even know that there are other stages because they've never been yeah. there th- themselves. And uh, right. yeah. I mean, occasionally there are people who, in a sense, hold people down on purpose, and those people tend to be cult leaders and. Mm. Uh, uh, autocratic politicians and so on. And there's right. plenty of them out there in, in both <laughs> politics and religion. Yes. Brian, how do you deal with that? Like you, you're saying things and been saying it through your writing that allows us to, Lewis and I, to feel connected and grounded and, and, and be more curious towards relationship with God and other people who most likely are in the simplicity zone would condemn that, right? Would come against you because you're calling out something. There's got to be so much criticism, right? How do you deal with that? Yeah, you know, well, first of all, um, as I'm sure we'll talk about when we talk about your story, you know about that criticism uh, yourself. So, um, and uh, a couple of things I'd say. Um, First, I didn't really... Almost every idea I've written about over my whole career as a writer, I had those ideas back when I was in my 20s, um, but I was scared to say them, and I only let them out a little bit at a time. So I didn't get a lot of criticism till I was uh, well into my 40s. That made it a lot yeah. easier. I think it's so hard to go through really intense criticism when you're younger. Mm-hmm. Well, by the time I was in my 40s, a couple of things had happened. First, I got to know a lot of the people, I call them gatekeepers, the ones who are out to, you know, uh, or, or kind of like watchdogs, bark and make a, a ruckus to say, this is a stranger and he doesn't belong here. Um, I had gotten to know some of these people and I realized that they were just doing their job. In other words, it wasn't that they were smarter than me. It wasn't that they knew more than me. It it wasn't that they were right and I was wrong. It was just that they were doing what they thought was right. And when I understood that, I didn't have to get so mad at them. I didn't have to take it personally either. I was able to say, of course, that's how they have to behave because that's where they are. And that's they're trying to be loyal soldiers to their little community. And um, and I could understand that. And they, they, I understood that in their mind, what they were doing was serving God and serving their community and so on. Um, and uh, so that, that helped me not take it too personally and yeah. not be too intimidated. Obviously, you know, 
I, I have an ego and I have insecurities like anybody else. And there were times where I was angry and wanted to strike back or I was afraid or something. But yeah, I mean, in, in part, those things either break you down or you develop strength and maturity through them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, used to work for some of those people. <laughs> um, so, uh, That's right. Definitely rings true for me um, as well. And maybe we can jump into just how we got to know sure, Brian through sure. the podcast. So, so one thing that happened for us, like we're later in life and um, came out. In our coming out process, you became part of a beautiful, comforting installation mm. for us. And so we had fallen in love. And at the time, she was working at <laughs> the lar- one of the largest national Christian organizations. Yes, right? I was. Yep, I was. Uh, yeah, so I'll just say the name. We, I was working at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. I had been there for 16 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, towards the end of my journey there, I knew I was going to be leaving and I knew I was planning to come out, but um, we started hanging out and things moved quickly, which kind of sped up the timeline a little bit. <laughs> so um, I uh, put in, you know, my notice to leave. I wanted to leave on good terms. I didn't want any drama. I didn't want, you know, I knew that I know their stance yes. on, you know, same-sex marriage, I knew that they would not be affirming. So I was like, let me just get out of here. Um, so that was all happening kind of in the background before mm-hmm. um, before mm-hmm. our wedding. Right. And so we got married in QS, Florida. And so our final day there during our, we got married, had our honeymoon simultaneously. We decided before we get on the plane, we were going to put our post out there on Facebook, right, which shows how old we are. We put it on Facebook. <laughs> And that that was our way of telling the world, like, hey, because, you know, I'm a psychotherapist known for that. I also am a founder of a ministry. And at the time of the church, I was there. I was one of the teaching pastors there. Mm -hmm. And so we put it out there. We asked some friends to monitor and to be our positive gatekeepers while we were on the plane and couldn't get to our phones. And we got on the plane and we turned on a podcast of you and Suzanne Stabile. Yep. We listened to you yep. and uh, Suzanne on the way back to Charlotte. Yeah. So. yeah, and it was comforting. And this is what I want you to know about that, because I do believe when we do the right thing for ourselves, we do the right thing for other people without meaning to or having to know yes. that that's the beautiful byproduct. Because things you said yes. on there came in mm-hmm. later, mm-hmm. like being told that people left the church because of me, being told that... My pastor at the time had to think about salaries of people because of me being there, what I was doing to impact the economic church. And you had spoken into that on that podcast. You had talked to that. I already had compassion for that. I already had empathy for that. Yeah. It, it didn't stop the fact that I felt like someone was was stabbing me, right. telling me that people were losing yeah. income because of me. Because that's really not a true statement. They, It's really because yes. of their bigotry, right? It's really right. not because of that. <laughs> Yeah. So it was like foreshadowing in a way. It was speaking to our lives in that moment, but it also kept coming back into conversation. We're like, he talked about that. Let's listen to that again, you know? Um, So thank you for doing that and just uh, for all the work that you do. But that particular interview meant a lot to us. 
Well, maybe I can just say first, uh, I my heart goes out to you for what you both went through. Um, it means a lot to me to know that, uh, you know, in some way, my words or work was a value to you. Uh, you, you both may know this already, but um, I have four adult children, um, uh, two in their 40s, two in their 30s, uh, and my two younger children are both gay my my son is gay and married my younger daughter is getting married in june oh yay uh and so uh, obviously this means uh, you know it means a whole lot to me whenever i hear a, a story mm -hmm. uh, a story like this um i in my own life you know as a pastor i grew up in those same kind of conservative settings that that would have written you and my children off. Um, I had this very, yes. you know, I'm, I thank God for this dear friend I had in high school, who our senior year, he came out to me, he was the first, I, I'm sure I knew gay people before that, I just didn't know it. He was the first out gay person mm. I, I ever met. And I knew that my theology or what I'd been taught at my church, which wasn't that much back then, we didn't talk about um, homosexuality. We just didn't talk about sexuality, except right. to say it was all right. bad. Right? Right. All of it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I felt like part of my adolescence was coming out as sexual. <laughs> so, great. That is great. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but my, that friend, I just knew he was a wonderful human being. Mm. And I, I knew that what my religious context said about him couldn't be accurate, which put me in a, a conflicted situation in the coming years, including my early years as a pastor. I always tried to be kind to every human being, but I also felt conflicted because I knew that uh, what the religious people I respected and I felt part of um, what they would say. And what was one of the blessings in my life, many people would know the name Tony Campolo. They might not know um, Tony's wife. Uh, Tony was a, a respected, wonderful author, um, uh, still alive, although he's up in years now and he's had a stroke. Uh, but and he and uh, has been just a dear friend to me. A lot of people don't know that Tony's wife, Peggy, was one of the very early people to come out publicly in full support of LGBTQ uh, equality. Mm -hmm. And and um, and Peggy uh, uh, once called me many years ago before, like less than six months before my two younger children came out. Oh. And she said, Brian, there is a church led by a gay pastor and he'd like to invite you to speak. And if you speak there, there will be a target on your back. Um, mm -hmm. And I didn't want him to have to ask you, and then you feel you had to reject him. Do you think right. I should encourage him to ask you? And I said, of course, I'd be glad to. So I'm so glad that I had already, in a sense, gone public in my support uh, yeah. for uh, for everyone um, before my kids came out. So at least they didn't have that burden on them. But I would imagine wow. part of your story has included not only your place of work, but also family members and friends who... Yeah, who, who you felt that stab, as you mentioned, yeah. And even like internally, like dealing, being in those circles and hearing those yes. messages and then mm -hmm. also knowing what's going on inside and trying to reconcile the two um, took some time as well. But then, yes, of course, um, 
some some friends and family that have been like more supportive than I could have imagined, and then yes. some that have just ended. Yeah. Well, and the, the grace and compassion we have for people because we have our own internalized homophobia. Right, like we've had to yes. deal with our, yes. right? And so there's so much grace, but as Larissa and I talk about, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, like, and I, and I feel like God went to the depth of hell to pursue me and bring me to an understanding that I'm worthy yes. of that kind of love. Mm-hmm. And even with that, it is taking me more grace to remain a Christian than it took to become a Christian. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's quotable right there. That's quotable. <laughs> right. You make sure you say my name. Two T's. Kim Honeycutt. Two T's. Remember that. Right. But it's it's true. Like it's it was. I'm like I love God and I love Jesus and it's all about love and I love preaching. I love reading my Bible and standing on the stage and sharing what God showed me. Like it's mm-hmm. a, it's such a humble privilege. Yes. But to also know that the grace it takes to stay in it. Yeah. It's so yes. interesting, so different. Yeah. I think especially for LGBTQ yes. people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That have been targeted. And we so. still keep yes. showing up. Well, you know, yeah. and, and I'm thinking, Kim, you in, in your uh, therapeutic work, you would see this so often, but I think one of the really painful experiences I had as a pastor through the years is I had uh, many people in my congregation and some in my family um, who were neurodivergent, they were on the autism spectrum, or who had various mental illnesses, whether it's a schizophrenia or uh, or uh, bipolar disorder or uh, other, uh, other mental uh, challenges. And they were in religious settings that didn't believe there was such a thing. Right. Um, and or right. they told them if they had more faith, they would be healed. And um, and yes. I just remember th- watching people be just people who needed understanding and compassion be treated worse in the church than any place they could have been treated. And then mm-hmm. to think that there that uh, that's true of so many people in the LGBTQ community. But then right. I go back. 400 years, five, 500 years. And remember the whole era in the Middle Ages when witches were burned and people could be accused, women could be accused of being witches. And then you think these were probably really smart women. Yeah. <laughs> they were probably, many of them were Enneagram eights and Enneagram fours. And then you just think, and they were treated, they were, and some were tortured and killed. And it was because they were women. So it's because they were women. Yeah. 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 They were smart women who had found a different way to heal somebody or to do something, or they spoke yeah. out just about anything. And so mm-hmm. then all they had to do was say they were a witch, and then there's reason to kill them, and no one questioned things. Yeah. And yes. so there's a similarity now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just, you know, it's, it's my mission. It's something so big for me about ending the stigma against mental health, particularly within the church. And that is the mission statement for ICU Talks, the ministry that we're a part of. I had someone come in just two weeks ago, and she's an amazing woman. She's been through so much, including including loss of a child. And she's in a Bible study. Then they are teaching, you you take it to God first, that we don't take enough to God. If you're depressed, you pray more, you do all this. They're showing videos that this woman said are from the 1970s, saying the same thing. They were now 40 years later. And so, of course, I was a little 
sarcastic and told her ways to ask the instructor about understanding parasympathetic and sympathetic and understanding if someone's in dorsal vagal, what that means. Like, like I could, if I was in the class, it would be interesting <laughs> because the neuroscience proves God created us for connection and also created us to go yes. into fear when there was a threat. And so how do yes. you tell me anybody, anybody that alone can self-regulate get themselves back to a place that they are ready to go be a witness for Jesus. Like we're not supposed to do it that way. Why did Jesus have disciples? If we're supposed to do this by ourselves, like to me, it's also contradictory and people are dying from it. And that's I, my heart couldn't yes. burn more for that. Yes. Yes. Well, to me, uh, that's such beautiful and important work. As you say that, um, uh, Kim, I'm remembering in my years as a pastor, we had a young man who attended our church. And as often happens, you know, between the ages of 18 or 19 and 29 or so, he, his mental illness, uh, uh, he had his first major episode and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and some other uh, issues. And he ended up living, living with us for many years. And then, um, he, uh, and it was tragically, he got lung cancer at a, at a really relatively young age. I don't know if he was 40 or in his forties. And, um, and by the time it was diagnosed, he, it was too late. And so I ended up walking with him through his, uh, his dying process. And I remember near his death, uh, I was able to uh, probably our last real heart to heart conversation where he was still able to talk you know and I, mm -hmm. I i said to him uh his name was jeff i said jeff you you know i i respect you so much i've known you for decades now and i respect you for mu so much and he got this look on his face like are you serious do you really respect me i said jeff i think it takes you more courage to get through one day Amen. than it takes me to get through a whole year and I'll never forget at that moment. It was an absolutely true thing that I was saying. I sincerely, honestly believe that. And it was genuine, sincere respect. And I just yeah. felt at that moment how many people had made him feel ashamed, sadly, including yeah. some of his family who was ashamed of him. Sure. And um, so this is all important work, isn't it? And of course, this is so much of what Jesus did. Jesus went to people yeah. everybody else was shaming and telling to shut up and uh, right. so on. And, uh, yeah, it's the absolute truth. So what do you think this prediction, even if it's not 67 million people from what I read from your from your writings and hearing you on podcast, 67 million people have left the church during the pandemic. Do you see it remaining this way? Do you see people coming back and, and doing church differently? Is there a, do you have a, foreshadowing a forecast for where the church is going yes so this is as you can imagine kim a lot of people ask me this question uh, uh and i guess it's just because i get out a lot and because i've been at this uh in this work a long time um and i but i read the same statistics that other people read of course i i do get into probably a lot more conversations of people across different denominations and so on than some people. But I like to say to people, I, I don't think it's a smart thing to make predictions if what people are going to do with that prediction is say, 
here's what's going to happen. Let me adjust to it. What I'd rather right. say to people is what should happen and how can we help create that? Does that make sense? Rather than yeah. adjust to reality, I'd rather us all play a part in uh, shaping mm -hmm. the reality of the future. But let, uh, what I, if I could give one piece of advice that's something like a prediction to people, here's what it would be. I would tell people, expect the opposite to happen. In other words, mm -hmm. I think in the coming years, we will see uglier forms of Christianity than we've ever seen in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll see more beautiful forms of Christianity than we've seen in our lifetime. And, yeah. and, and this is where when people leave ugly forms of Christianity, that's not a bad thing. And until there are more of the beautiful forms, I wouldn't be happy if people were signing up right so that's why i think for all of us who can stay christian the, the big thing we should aim to do is to embody in our individual lives in our families and friendships and wherever we can in congregations more beautiful forms of christianity and what does that look like for you as you're saying um like kind of what's your vision for for how that yes. to fruition well, I mean, the, the thing that we, we've already really hit on, first of all, is that if we would like to be in those more beautiful forms of Christianity, we will take seriously uh, love as our prime directive. Love is the great commandment. Um, love is yeah. the new commandment that Jesus gave. Love is what Paul said, is the only thing that lasts, even outlasts faith and hope. Isn't that interesting? Um, yeah. Faith and hope and love remain, but the greatest of those is love. So that would yeah. be a start. A, a second thing I think that we would, we're going to have to do going forward is we're going to have to stop putting the Bible on top and Jesus under the Bible. I love how, I think it was Martin Luther who said it, the Bible is the manger on which Christ is presented to the world to, to let mm. Jesus, the life teaching example, spirit of Jesus really be yeah. center. That doesn't mean we throw out the Bible, but we stop using the Bible as a cage uh, right. that we don't let Jesus out of. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Maybe that would lead to the third thing is so, so first we put love first, second, we put Christ first. And third, we start reading the Bible like grownups, because mm -hmm. if we don't realize how the Bible has been used to cause such great harm, then mm -hmm. we're going to keep reading it like, uh, like children. And uh, a sentence you mentioned, um, Larissa, my book, uh, Faith After Doubt, a sentence I wish I put in the book um, that I didn't. I thought of the sentence afterwards, but, but here it is. Um, <laughs> doubt, doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is the enemy of authoritarianism. Yeah. And, and, and in a sense, we have to free the Bible from authoritarian readings of the Bible. Yes, good. So to go back your statement about adult, in that night, I did a talk at my church a few weeks ago. It is sermon about emotional regression because we all emotionally yeah. regress, right? And my whole talk yes. was about how do we go understand emotional regression, what it looks like. And again, if you are in a congregation that your pastor preaches at you, your pastor's emotionally regressed and you will stay emotionally regressed, right? Because people don't get preached at or shamed at and grow because you have to feel safe to grow. My point to everybody was how do we go from a child of God to an adult child? of God because that's such a different relationship yes 
Right. And so the idea of reading the Bible as an adult, which means it is studious, there is something behind it. There's more there opposed to a life of convenience and simplicity, which goes back to your your first date. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, too, of your uh, Kim has said before that your emotional how is it? Your, your emotional and your, your spiritual. Yeah, your emotional maturity and spiritual fulfillment will never surpass each other. They will always be the same. So if we're in churches that are teaching against medication, teaching against therapy, then then you are already stunting your yeah. your spirituality and your spiritual growth yeah. just from that. And here's where authoritarianism comes in in a situation like that. That mm-hmm. gets taught because religious leaders who care more about their authority structure are aware that if you get therapy or if you're on medication, in some way it might loosen their authoritarian rule over your life. And uh, yeah, so these things are are interconnected. Yeah, good leaders want what's best for their people and good leaders don't play God so that they assume they know what's best for their people. They are willing to listen and yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so true and so so well said. And I didn't plan on asking this, and it's probably a mundane question, which as an eight, I don't want to ask you what everybody else has asked you, but I'm going to ask you this anyway. <laughs> uh, what What are you thinking about? What are your reflections on the Asbury revival that's happening? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I was part of uh, the Jesus movement, and so I was part of many uh very intense experiences like that and um and i know how valuable that is to young people um, right. right so i don't want to i don't want to uh in any way try to knock down something that's been deep and precious uh, for people um mm-hmm. and at the same time i got an email today uh, from a company that's trying to make money off the asbury revival and so uh-huh. um uh, they're selling the music of the revival and you don't, it doesn't, didn't just happen there. You can buy this music and it will happen in your living room. Oh, and wow. uh, and yeah. so just this awareness that some very tender and precious experiences, uh, th- that nothing is incorruptible. <laughs> People can, can, uh, corrupt anything. And I would also say, that in highly charged religious settings, you know, over time we learn that a lot of manipulation happens and so on. So I'm very respectful of people's deep spiritual experiences. And I'm also sad when they're either corrupted or manipulated. Yeah, I love that answer. Thank you for that. It just continues to increase my respect for you and your perspective and, and that you're allowing it it allows all of us to reach our own conclusion which goes back to being a good leader that you're listening and there's 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 room for everybody thanks so anything else profound life-changing words of wisdom for (laughs) two women who are trying to marry make it as newlyweds that you want to say well hey i just want to say thank you for what you're doing with this podcast because when your voices go out other people find out that they're not alone and you know every and and i think we can all hope that five years and 10 years and 50 years from now there'll be a lot less stigma and 
uh, judgment and shame and blame uh, shifting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and we're all in that together. And I'm so glad for, for what you're doing and putting yourselves out there. And uh, thank you. Yeah, no, thank, thank you. you. That means so much. It means a lot. So we're going to put you in the hot seat. Okay. And it just means we're going to ask you some questions and just whatever comes to mind first. You can hear the therapist <laughs> in this, right? All whatever right. comes to mind first is what, what you say. All right. I'll ask the first one. Uh, if you could have any superpower, what would what superpower would you choose? Well, I'd like the superpower to stop global warming and, uh, and abuse of the earth. <laughs> Ooh, I like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. All right. So what do you want to be known for? Mm. Well, you know, because I've been a public figure, I, I'm known for a, a lot of things for better or worse there. But I think what I really would like to be known for is I've got five grandkids and I just would like to be known by them as a granddad who really loved them. Oh, that's that so answer. sweet. That's so sweet. It's a four answer. Yeah. What uh, <laughs> do you have a favorite quote? As of Enneagram 4, I have a hard time with favorites. So if you don't, that's fine. But maybe one of <laughs> your favorite quotes. Well, well, I'll tell you, I'm writing a book right now called Life After Doom that is about living in a world of, uh, of ecological overshoot and all that that entails and there's a beautiful quote from Vaclav Havel where Havel Vaclav Havel the Czech uh uh former president um and poet and not often is a poet a president uh, maybe a four who who was a president I don't know but um Havel said hope is not uh hope is not uh the belief that things will turn out the way you wish. Mm -hmm. Hope is the belief that some things are worth doing no matter how they turn out. That's yeah. a, that's, that's been meaning a lot to me lately. Well, your other favorite quote is what I said earlier. So let's not, <laughs> let's not forget. Let's not forget. That's fresh. All right. Yeah. You can put that in your book. All right. So who is your favorite married couple that one person, the couple is an Enneagram eight and the others Enneagram four. Who's your favorite? <laughs> I, I, I present company is definitely done boom that was not a step at all that was an authentic genuine answer from our new best friend brian that's right so brian i know there's a plethora of ways i know there's so many ways people can keep in touch with you um throw it out there real quick if there's when your name of your new book to remind everybody mm -hmm. if there's instagram handle how yes. do people continue to follow you yeah so the best thing is, uh, if you go to brianmclaren.net, there are all the links to Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and so on. And the new book is called Do I Stay Christian? Yeah, so good. Awesome. Brian, we love you. Yes, thank and you. Thank you so much for being a part of this today. I'm so glad I got to meet you by Zoom and look forward to meeting in person sometime before too long. We will. <laughs> all right, listeners, thank you all so much. We know that you heard something today that flipped your lid and pretty sure you also heard something help you reconnect to who you really are. We'll see y'all next time. Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit butyourmotherlovesyou.com. Remember, no matter what, treat yourself well today. <laughs>